Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Uh, Bud, it is traditional signing day. That obviously the uh, first Wednesday of February doesn't quite have the cachet and, and focus that uh, it once did, but still a pretty good and clear point of delineation as far as uh, where a program's going. It's a good full look back at what the class is. And uh, if you're a Florida State fan, we have talk of a uh, pretty exciting wide receiver committing as well. So uh, we'll just jump into it here. Like I said, use this as kind of a mark in time, uh, a good uh, mile marker to see where the program is, get a feel for where it's heading, and uh, excited about the conversation tonight. I'm excited, man. Signing day, like it's it's still real to me. Damn it! If if you ever seen that that wrestling meme, yeah, it, it's it's still real to me. Florida State finishes 22nd in the 24/7 Sports Composite recruiting rankings. I haven't looked at what the other company uh, has FSU at because I don't work there. Uh, but 22nd, all things considered, you know, not not too bad. They hit, I would say, you know, most of their needs uh, and stayed on track. I think for a slow uh, rebuild, which is what we said they would basically have to do since they made the choice to make a coaching change after only two years during the early signing period era. They did get a really nice get today, though. I, I want to start there with the most positive of news. Get, getting Destin Hill from New Orleans, a, a kid who I'm pretty sure committed to them silently back in March. I'm real sure, actually. And he just ended up did not doing a whole lot of interviews. There was rumors about other schools kind of swooping in on him. He elected not to sign during the early signing period for whatever reason. The reason I was told on that is because Hill is actually younger than his class. Like he doesn't turn 18 for quite a while. And some of his people were not real crazy about him, uh, you know, signing early and enrolling early when he wasn't even 18 years old during a pandemic, which honestly, I mean, as a parent, not like my son's the age to go away. Uh, but I, I can certainly see his mom uh, saying, nah, I don't know, like maybe you shouldn't do that. At least that that's, that's what some of my people told me as far as what went down with the early signing period, but ultimately credit to first and foremost, coach David Johnson. I mean, the, the Johnson is the guy that has, you know, the relationship with Hill, formerly Dustin pays on you know, the relationship in new Orleans, um, I think, you know, Ron Dugans and then also Coach Dillingham uh, assisted in this one as well. The, the main credit certainly goes to Coach Johnson. Uh, he's, he's known as a, as a stud recruiter and, and he showed his worth here getting, you know, for my money, by, by far the best prospect in Florida State's class. Uh, and so nice job. What, what, I know you watched Hill quite a bit today. What, what do you think about him? Well, I mean, it, it's no, uh, no, keen football eye has to point out that anytime this kid steps on the field, he's going to be one of the two or three fastest people on the field, if not the fastest. I mean, you are getting a legit explosive skill guy. And, uh, you know, you're getting a, I saw the stat that uh, Brennan Sinone tweeted out earlier and made me look twice, but uh, first top 150 skill guy that you've signed since the 2017 class. I mean, you're getting an explosive guy, stretch the field. Um, and just gives you a dynamic to this offense that uh, that you very much need, and I think it's it's a it says a lot about the staff. And uh, you know, we've been critical of, of some of the relationship uh, building, but if you're able to keep a kid committed for 11 months, 
that's, I mean, that is a real big deal. I look at that as bigger than just the pro, uh, prospect itself. I, I look at that as a, a staff that's done a great job laying the groundwork with a relationship and maintaining it and fostering it throughout the course of a season where I imagine there were some absurdly challenging times in doing that. So um, look, Florida State signs with a you know top 20, top 25 class. We're not going to sit here and have a conversation that's uh, – you know, let you <laughs> unplug the or turn the phone off and, and think that they've signed a top 10 class or something like that. But I, I do think the addition of Hill is a, uh, a real good sign. And I, I'll be honest with you, but I'm, I'm having to, <laughs> I'm having to kind of pump the brakes about some optimism with a program here internally, uh, which is a good feeling because I haven't had to do that in a long damn time. I mean, I think they're really setting up for a uh, potential game changer 2022 class and uh, getting a kid like this. Um, you know, I don't know that, that Bama came full guns blazing or, or some others did, but you certainly had to fight a decent amount of people off. Uh, I think it speaks a lot to the health of the program, uh, the ability to recruit, maintain relationships and see it through the, through the entirety of the process. And, uh, I'm, I'm real excited about how this program sets up for a, a 2022 class. As we've discussed, it's got to be a real good one. And I think they have a real chance to do it. I'm right there with you. I mean, look, looking at, at Destin Hill, what, when I first saw him in person, he, he was Destin Payson and, and he, he tore it up at the U.S. Army All American Combine, I believe was the fastest guy there. Explosive player, has some real wiggle to him. I, I think he's a guy who understands how to run routes. You know, may, maybe not the tallest guy in the world, but he's not, he's not a midget. I like him a whole heck of a lot. Mike Norvell complimented him as well today during his press conference on his, his willingness to block. His, contrib- you know, his contributions in special teams as well. And I look, do I think he was a take for Florida or Bama or LSU you know, at, at the end of the cycle? No, I don't. But at different points in, in the cycle, you know, those schools were, were interested. Florida was certainly interested for a while. And they, like, they, they filled up and they decided to go in different directions because they didn't want to wait. And that's understandable. That, that is something that happens in the early signing period era. Just because you didn't have to fend them off on signing day doesn't mean you didn't have to fend them off on during the early signing period, right? Doesn't mean you didn't have to fend them off in October and November when you were only winning three games. So this staff does deserve a lot of credit for winning this battle over that long stretch of time. And I, I think that was what the, the trust based relationship uh, really meant for Destin Hill. In addition, he was one of the few kids who actually was able to get on campus and meet the recruit, meet the coaching staff and watch a practice. Uh, before all this craziness happened. That that shouldn't be discounted here. On the 24-7 sports composite, he is the number uh, number 113 player. FSU's next highest rated player is Hunter Washington at 250. So a, a really big jump there. That's pretty solid. And, and if you look at the receiver class they're bringing in, you got Hill, you have the, the, you know, the big body kind of deeper threat in Malik McLean. You have Josh Burrell who you know, this, this staff certainly thinks is fast. I, I'm going to wait to see it based on, on some of the times. Uh, but I, we both agree <laughs> that he's, he's fast or excuse me, that he's tough, that he catches the ball well. You know, he, he's a thicker guy who may be able to play some, you know, some early football for you. That, that's a pretty decent trio for a team that's rebuilding. I, I went, went ahead and took a look. Yeah. I, I don't know that I'd call it like a top five receiver class, but I think you can legitimately call this a, a top 10 receiver class. In the country, which is an important accomplishment because this is a position you absolutely had to hit out of the park. And uh, they certainly got most of their top targets here 
that they could reasonably hope to get? Absolutely. You know, this class did a, this class, as we said, it's kind of limited, but I think it did a uh, real good job of addressing some need at, at wide receiver and, and defensive end. And, you know, we'll, we'll turn our attention with some of the numbers that are left out there uh, in the podcast in a couple moments. But uh, no, the wide receiver, this is a, if you can say Florida State hit a home run anywhere in recruiting, it's at this position. And uh, three really good gets and McLean and Hill are, have the potential to be special talents. Um, so well done to the staff there. Uh, needed it, had to have it, and ultimately uh, had to wait till Wednesday to get it. But uh, a really great class when it comes to the wide receivers. Yeah. Uh, now let's flip to the other side here. And the kid that didn't get today in uh, Taiwan Malone, New Jersey defensive tackle slash first baseman. I think if you're an old cast listener, you're not really surprised about this one. We told you how the staff felt when his visit was over, right? And he visited FSU, he visited Texas A&M, he visited Old Miss, I believe twice. In my experience, when staffs land a kid, for the most part, they come out of a visit thinking, oh, we're going to get this kid. If they tell you, hey, I think we're in it, that's not a great sign, right? Like you need to basically work this kid to a fever pitch where if he could sign following the visit, he would. And I just, I never got that vibe from the staff that they really thought they were going to get him. Um, clearly a high priority target they chased and ultimately they, they missed. Uh, I think his familiarity with Ole Miss, Ole Miss's connection to the state of New Jersey as, as far you know, as, as having Coach Partridge there recruit him, who's a you know legend in the New Jersey high school ranks. Um, and then also having the number of guys on Ole Miss's football team who are also on the baseball team, I think that was hard to overcome. I suspect FSU finished third here at A&M, uh, but they, they gave it their best effort. It, you don't have much of a product to sell right now. And, uh, but if we're going to talk about the hits, we'll also talk about the misses. And Malone was a miss in, in the defensive tackle position this year. If you go just straight by the positional, you know, rankings, uh, FSU didn't sign any, which is terrible. But, you know, if you look at some of the guys they signed who are listed as defensive ends, I, I think Shambray Jackson is going to be an interior guy. Pretty sure they do too. Josh Farmer, I, I suspect pretty strongly is going to be an interior player. So all hope is not lost there. You know, Keir Thomas in the interim. Can play some on the inside, although I think he's probably more uh, of of that strong side end role for the Knowles. Uh, but yeah, Ben like Malone certainly was a miss that hurt because you need to, to get some difference makers on the inside. That is the toughest position to recruit in college football, or one of them. And uh, they've not really got many difference makers there in the last what three four years. No, no. I'm just circling back to what we said. Uh, if you're not leading after the visit, then you you're not. If you're not leading, then you're not going to be leading really at any other time throughout the recruitment process. Uh, historically, when you look at this process, and uh, Malone signs elsewhere, as expected. You're right; a couple of these defensive end prospects will ultimately turn into interior players. But uh, between you know having to battle some chain challenges on the field and all the things that have gone on that have led to limitations for Florida State recruiting, and also what's unique at the defensive line position is I, I do think there's some you know, philosophical differences in some of the kids that were recruited two years ago to what they're trying to do right now. So uh, it'll be a major focus for next year's class. And 
uh, it's been a while since you <laughs> since you signed game changers. And uh, if you don't have game changers along the line of scrimmage in general, it's a limitation as to exactly how far you can go. No doubt. Uh, by the way, uh, Caleb Botang, who was a uh, 2018 prospect, off the tackle, he was looking at like FAU, Arizona, Maryland back in the day. We, we thought Florida State should take a look. Uh, Clemson actually saw something in him, pulled the trigger at the offensive tackle spot. He, he's from South Florida, and uh, they they offered him. He committed, obviously. Uh, but he uh, he's in the portal. Yeah. Something yeah. to watch. Yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, the, the, as I said a second ago, at, at this point, everybody's eyes uh, are going to transition to offensive tackle, and, uh, you know, maybe that's a, a name that those that are on social media and immediately, uh, you know, put the eyeballs on every tackle that enters the portal, uh, that that's somebody that they should uh, write down and, and keep an eye on. So, I mean, you have to, right? Like if, if, if you go out and we get, get Mackenzie Milton, how many steps are, are, are you away from having to play a, a Chaz Neal or Jalen Goss? That's my thoughts on it. If you're at all close to being an injury or two away from those guys having to play meaningful snaps in your season, you got to f- go find yourself somebody who is better than them. And, and I, I, I'm somewhat believe, like I will somewhat believe the argument that maybe you don't have, maybe there's not tackles in the portal who are better than your starters. But if your second stringers are that bad, I, I, I think I'm very receptive to the argument that, that th- some of these guys are better than those dudes. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and transition here real fast. Uh, I dug up some cool stats. You interested in these? Always. You want to, okay. All right. If not, we can skip. If this gets boring, just tell me, bud, let's move on. But, uh, <laughs> so some context. So you finished 22nd. Right. You only took 17 players from the high school ranks, which is, you know, fairly low. Uh, we know that a lot of teams did this. FSU is not even on the most extreme end. I mean, Texas State didn't sign anybody. Did you see that? Zero high schoolers? I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. They're just going to go full portal for a year and, th- and then resume the high school, you know, high school recruiting next time. Uh, Florida State, seven, four stars in the high school ranks, 10, three stars. So here's something interesting, right? We, we, we heard the Ole Miss talk. We heard uh, you know, the Maryland talk and the guys who are, are year zero and year one coaches, basically. No coach who's a year zero, meaning they just got hired, or year one, meaning they just finished their first year. None of those coaches signed a top 15 class. None of them. None of those coaches signed a class with an average player rating of 90 plus. And I'm pretty sure none of them signed one of 89 plus. I mean, I'm looking here. Uh, I guess Tennessee technically, but Tennessee's got two guys who have already re- like requested releases from their letters and they're going to get those releases at some point. I'm pretty sure, even if they must appeal. So that, that's going to bump Tennessee, you know, way down, which means that Florida State just scanning here. I, I'm pretty sure from all those year zero and year one coaches. Mike Norvell and his staff did have the highest average player rating among the high schoolers they signed. That's not bad, man. Like, I, I, I think that helps me put it into context. Does this class suck? Eh, it's like the second or third worst class you've signed in the last 30 years by the numbers. But if you consider some of the things they were going against, that's, that's tough, dude. It, it, I think the context is necessary and important. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it helps you to have an idea as kind of where you are with your your peer group of new coaches. We've talked uh, ad nauseum about how 
the introduction of the early signing day period was going to have all sorts of ripple effects, but uh, a lot of those um, <clears throat> a lot of those would be felt by new staffs and uh, the you know the lack of continuity that exists there, and that's not just a year one thing. And then obviously this year is a a different year for everybody when it comes to uh, pandemic recruiting. And you know if if you listen to this podcast for any time, uh, by the way, Bud, I'm. Tonight's the, I think, the 500th uh, episode of the Nolcast. So, tip of the hat to you uh, and our listeners for us hitting that. Oh wow! As that's Nolcast specific, by the way, our total number is uh, significantly higher than that. Got it. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you listen to us, <laughs> five episodes, fifty episodes, five hundred episodes, I think you know we're not necessarily sunshine pumpers. We'll be uh, as honest as possible, and uh, you know, I, I think you can, you know, you can feel confident about some of what this staff can do without looking yourself in the mirror and, and telling yourself that you're just find a, trying to find optimism uh, about things. Now, it'll be interesting to see how they deal, assuming things return to normal, uh, how they deal with recruiting kind of the traditional areas uh, that Florida State has to lean on. And that will be a loss for them uh, as far as this year goes, not being able to develop those relationships. Um, but it will be interesting to see how Florida State fairs in a recruiting scene that hopefully is uh, is much more that of which we're all familiar to. Uh, but for the time being, I think you have to, you know, give the staff credit. I think it's a, it's a solid job and one that you would hope that they would grow on in a significant manner for 2022. I agree. And, and if, you, if you listen to Coach Norvell today in his press conference, you know, he mentioned they're, they're chomping at the bit to get out and meet some of these high school coaches and these players and these parents in person. I mean, there's a decent number of guys in their class they've never met in person. That's just, that didn't normally happen, right? But, but it did here. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's important to, to get out there and do that. I, I don't think that they are blind to, to that fact. I mean, they signed what three players of like the 55 ish four and five star guys from the state of Florida. They signed three. That's terrible. Like we, we, we can't sugarcoat that. Like that, that is horrendous. Um, if that happens again, these guys won't be here, but I don't think it will happen again, unless for some reason the pandemic stuff just lasts forever. And then who knows if we have college football ever again, uh, but yeah. So like they have to do a better job in the state. You're exactly right. I think the approach they took this year for the most part is uh, logical, defensible, reasonable, given what they knew at the time about the recruiting landscape. Um, I mean, you can quibble some they, should they have taken Pat Payton earlier? Maybe, but they got him anyway. Not, not, I mean, I don't know if that really defends the, the, the process there, but they, they ended up getting him anyway. He, he tried to commit to them you know, much earlier in the year. Uh, I will say this. I went and looked, and a lot of people say, well, hey, they're 22nd, but that doesn't factor in the transfers. And, and that's true, right? Like FSU made a conscious choice to only take 17 high schoolers. They, they would have gone to 18 if they could get Malone. Uh, because they wanted to get the transfers. When you take these transfers, you are trading basically, you're trading off upside because these guys don't have great upside. They're limited players, but you're trading that upside for some certainty and some immediate assistance. FSU made the decision that that is what they want, right? That's, that's fair. I, I think it's reasonable to assume this roster probably needed some of that. Um, but I went ahead and said, okay, like let's say you take these transfers you, you call two of them four stars, the rest of them three stars, 
I think maybe some of them are two star level players, but we'll see. Uh, let's just call, let's just call them all, all the rest of them three stars. And I plugged it in. I did some calculating, right? So you're looking at a, at a team that signs about, you know, nine four stars and, uh, and like 17 three stars for about 26 total players. So I actually found a couple, uh, 20, 2019 Nebraska, pretty good comparison. They, they finished 17th. 2020 Penn State finished 15th. That class was definitely better, but it was, you know, close enough. Uh, 2018 UCLA is almost a perfect match here. Nine four stars, 17 three stars. Uh, they finished, I think, uh, I think they finished 16th. So, uh, no, if you plug in, if you plug in these transfers, you, you do not have a top 10 level class, but you do have a class that is, is better. Even if you, everybody else plugs in their transfers, it's certainly better than 22nd, right? Like you, you're, your use of your 25 incoming players is better than, uh, than, than 22nd. It's probably somewhere between like 15th and 18th ish, which is not that bad when you just went three and six. No, certainly not that bad at all. So that, that's kind of where I had it when I put in, uh, when I just looked at the, the kids and gave it a, a spot look as to where I thought they would be. So, yeah, I mean, you're looking at, you know, signing a class somewhere between 14 and 18, something like that. And that's a, that's a solid start for the old proverbial climb. And uh, like I said, you'll have to, uh, this will be the crawl. And in 2022, you certainly hope you are up walking and, and running pretty aggressively. Man, I hope, uh, by the way, I saw that Damian Webb is no longer with, uh, with, with the Troy program. Uh, I, that's from Craig Stevenson. On Twitter, I, I hope he's okay, man. That's uh, yeah, I saw that too. I hope uh, hope the best for that kid. That that was troubling to see. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully things are good on that end. And Webb's certainly a talented player, hard runner, and somebody that we wish the best. I don't really have a great transition for this tonight. If you want to buy a new home, if you want to refi your home, you know where to go. Eight four four FSU loan. Call the legendary team. Eight four four FSU loan. Get at him on Twitter at Noel Loans. Shannon's just the best guy in the business. We, we did another, what, three last week, I think. I mean, interest rates right now are incredible. It's a great time to buy. If, if, if you're into that, it's a great time to refi. Certainly, I've had both experiences with Shannon, both buying and refining. It's been great. Give Shannon and Chad a call, 844-FSU-LOAN. Find out why the legendary team is the right choice for you. Absolutely. We're not even finding out necessarily in our, uh, in our email inbox anymore. People are starting to take to Twitter with it. So we certainly appreciate all the support. The Twitter guy beat Shannon to the punch. Yeah. He, he, I, I think he actually, I think he tweeted us before Shannon sent us the, the t-shirt email. He might, you know, probably had the tweet preloaded there. Wanted to go ahead and fire it off as he was walking out of the meeting, but no, great, great stuff to see great people to work with and uh, people that were ever so fortunate to, uh, to be able to pair with. So uh, before we transition to the questions, we'll just kind of talk real quickly, ping pong some ideas, takeaways uh, that the two of us had over the last 24 hours or so. Um, I, I'm not a, a big fan of necessarily reading into uh, trying to, you know, hyper analyze everything that coaches say, bud, but <laughs> I did get a pretty large smirk on my face when I heard uh, Mike Norvell say that the freshmen will potentially bring maturity to the wide receiver room. Uh, that was uh, that was something that stuck out. That that my ears perked up as well when he said, "I was like, oh wait, so we're the freshmen." Like if he had said they'll bring some speed or some uh, some size to the receiver room, okay, but the freshmen will bring maturity to the receiver room. Right statement. 
Ingram's webcam is broken right now, so I have mine turned off too. But uh, the face I'm making right now is is very like my eyebrows are. I look like the Rock. It's like, hmm, okay, that's that's curious. I, I do think that says something about their receiver room. Um, it's also probably why they wanted Drew Estrada so bad. If you recall the, the, the transfer target they had, who who just kind of one of these experienced college receivers, maybe not the most physically imposing guy, but uh, but a pretty seasoned route runner, uh, hands that you know that, that that type of player. I think they need that. That's why they're still going after receivers in the transfer portal. And I guess they have one you know, committed in Andrew Parchment, but he's not signed. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, that was the one that stood out to me. He also, I just think if you're reading those comments, he talks about attacking 2022, getting out on the road. I think he very much knows that they have to hit this 22 class from the high school ranks out of the park. I, I think the transfer portal can absolutely help you raise your floor quickly. I don't think it raises your ceiling that quickly. And there are multiple levels of this rebuild. You need to a get back to a bowl game first, obviously. And then you probably need to find, have a season where you, I don't know, maybe get to like eight wins or something or nine, but eventually you didn't get to get back to where you're competing for conference titles. And it's hard to envision that happening under Mike Norvell. If they do not do a very good job with the 2022 class. That's not me saying it's getting late early or anything like that at all, because I don't believe it is. But like you think about it, you have to knock the 2022 class out of the park because those are going to be the guys who are, are sparking your 2023 team, most likely as, as second-year players. So he seems to know that. That's, that's encouraging. Um, and yet, you, know, you, you hope that they are aiming at the right kind of guys. So we, we spoke about this in the last show for 2022. They need to plan... Like, hey, what is there a reason this kid's going to stick with us if he's as good as we think he is? If, if we go five and seven, six and six, seven and five, like that, that needs to be a reasonable discuss, a discussion had for all these kids you're recruiting. Now, maybe for a couple of them, you say, all right, well, the answer is no, and we're still going to recruit, we're still going to recruit him anyway because of the chance we can maybe go eight and four or something like that and keep and, and show real growth. But uh, I think that's going to be important in the planning. And then I had one more comment that, 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 uh, that caught my ear. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I have a feeling where you might be going with this. Yeah. Quote, a couple more spots. A couple more spots. That was not the math that was uh, traditionally out there. So we kind of talked about this, kind of threw this idea out there. I, I think there's a, you know, there, there may be some creativity in the kitchen of scholarship finding. I'll put it that way when it comes to uh, what Florida State's trying to do right now. And uh, I think they, they have maybe two more places to try to, try to go. The, the idea that you threw out on what last show or two shows ago that like, Hey, what, what if one of these transfer guys is a walk on that we don't know about? I've been thinking a lot about this. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. Right. You know, which would probably mean that it would be one of the guys who's not just a one year rental because like you, you, in a situation you say, Hey, like come here, transfer for, you know, for one year as a walk on, then we'll put you on scholarship for for the rest of your your time here. I don't know who that is, but if if that's if, if this is going to happen, if they really have more spots left, as Norvell said today, that's almost the way it has to happen because I'm pretty sure none of these high schoolers that that they signed are uh, are, are walk ons. We'll see. I mean, I, to call it an educated guess, we'll uh, see and hopefully. 
<clears throat> they have all the luck in the world in uh, going out and finding two offensive line prospects with the uh, with the spots that they may believe they have yet to fill. I, yeah, I mean, I just I wish I just knew because then I would just say it. But like, I this is the one. This is the scenario that makes the most sense for me. Unless there's something else that, that I'm not understanding, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm getting it right. You want to go to uh, some questions here? Yeah, man. Let's. Uh, <clears throat> we have some questions. Grabbed a, a couple questions from the email as well. Uh, as always, a uh, thank you to our Patreons. Uh, you could support us at Nolcast. Excuse me, Patreon. <laughs> I do this every week. Uh, Patreon.com backslash Nolcast. Uh, have a great group of supporters of the show, and we open. Uh, it up for questions, comments, feedback uh, weekly. And uh, man, I mean, we've been blessed since day one, but got to say the questions we've received over the last couple of weeks have been fantastic and a, a real great addition to the show. So thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, Tom asks, do recruits get a swag bag when they come on campus? And if so, what does that entail? Uh, but I will let you answer this uh, on anything that I don't hit. A lot of times there's a bag in the hotel room for them. And uh, no, it's not filled with money or mini bottles or whatever else. A lot of times it's just like you'll have a large cookie. There'll be some sweets in there. Um, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty PG and uh, basically, you know, not all that different than if you, you know, go to a wedding and you get a little bag that's got a bottle of water, a couple crackers in it, stuff like that. I mean, it's, a, it's a, basically just a welcoming bag and uh no it's not necessarily a greasy mcdonald's bag with five thousand dollars in it or anything else it's uh it, it's limited by the ncaa uh you, you get a, you get a lanyard um is this one of those bagels with cream cheese type issues yeah basically okay uh they, they actually they at one point they were limiting the size of the cookie cake you could give to the guy Ooh, so it is one of those issues yeah wow okay Good. I'm glad we get. I'm glad we get down to the minutia of stuff like that. So like you, you could give them cupcakes, but you couldn't give them the cookie cake. Like it was so stupid. You could give them the cup. You could give them. I think it was cupcakes, but not cookie cake. So then schools, because schools were, were spelling out the kid's name on the on the cookie cake. So then schools started to take and just like do kind of an arrangement of cupcakes where they would put like one letter of the kid's name on each cupcake. And then put them together and arrange them to spell the kid's name anyway. It, it's it's also stupid, but yeah, they they get a small swag bag. Uh, they're not allowed to give them like sweatshirts, gloves, that that type of stuff. And yet, you see kids at the seven on events all the time wearing school gear, and uh, it's kind of just don't ask, don't tell. This is almost always coming either from a current player on the team who the kid already knows. Or just an unscrupulous equipment guy, which every team needs one of those. Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a good friend of mine go to one of the more prestigious schools in the country uh, on a football scholarship, and even he told me when he when he went into the campus store, he said there was a a real big sale that kind of a flash sale that maybe nobody else had a chance to take advantage of. Uh, but yeah, yeah. You'll you'll occasionally leave with a garment or two from your time on campus. All right, uh, let me see here. Brandon asks us, do you think the one-time transfer rule will make high school recruits more willing to sign with a smaller school knowing they can transfer out if they do well? Or do you think they will want to sign with big schools like Alabama and transfer out if they don't win a job? So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I've got a friend of mine on a smaller staff recruiting or a smaller school staff 
and recruiting for them is nuts this year. I mean, they're having chances at kids that they haven't otherwise had because so many uh, of kind of mid-level recruits, I would describe them as, are getting squeezed out of opportunities because of consumption of spots by the uh, by the portal. Um, but they're, you know, they are excited about the opportunity to sign these kids and also have in the back of their mind that they're basically even in an era in which you can't really unrecruit kids, you really can't de-recruit or whatever phrase you want to use here. These kids, because they're paranoid that they're going to transfer (laughs) in eight months. Uh, So that's certainly in the back of everybody's mind uh, when it comes to recruiting right now. I don't know that it necessarily, I mean, kids are full of pride. Kids are full of ambition. If a kid sees himself as a Florida, Florida state player, I don't think that he's going to sign with uh, Jacksonville State because he believes that there's a quicker path elsewhere or the ability to transfer necessarily, though. Yeah, I don't know that there is a great like great answer to this question. I think it's an interesting question. The one I might think about, right, would be, I think some kids might, in a non-pandemic time, I think some kids might be more willing to to go far away from home if if this occurs because they know that they don't have to sit out that year when they decide to transfer. So if they get homesick, right? Like I think they might be more willing to take a chance on a school far away from home. If all things considered, you know, the quality of school is roughly the same as, as something nearby. Uh, So like this maybe could help Oregon pull some more kids from Florida if they wanted to. Uh, Maybe I'm just, I'm spitballing here, obviously, but I, I think that's, that's something that is, is certainly possible. But I still don't think like kids are not going to choose Alabama if, if they have Alabama as an option. I mean, Bama just signed literally the best recruiting class of, of all time today, which is kind of nuts. I mean, they, they passed that, that crazy Urban Meyer class that had, uh, like dreams and whatnot or vi- what was visits from God in, in, in a dream and, and all that stuff. You got to sign with me, Defo. So that's, that's a high bar to beat, but, uh, Nick Saban managed to do it. So credit to him and the infrastructure that exists, uh, at Alabama. Did you see they signed 15 of the top 91 players in the country? I mean, it's a video game at this point. It seriously is. I mean, that's Nick, one in six. Nick Saban is, uh, you know, almost in real life. Uh, he's 12 years deep into a college football dynasty where he's basically just signing every person that he wants to. And, we are but watching it, so uh, good for them. Yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty crazy. Next question. Uh, Santosh asks, this is actually pretty relevant to what we were discussing earlier, so good timing on this question, Santosh. When PWOs, so that's preferred walk-ons, finally get scholarships, first of all, do you think everybody knows what preferred walk-ons are? I would say probably 80% of our listeners do, but uh, why don't okay. you give a quick 20-second rundown? Short explanation is basically preferred walk-ons are guys who are essentially promised a non-scholarship roster spot on the team. So you don't have to come to the walk-on tryout. Like we like you good enough from high school that, hey, we're not giving you a scholarship, but if you if you get into school, uh, we will have a spot on the roster for you. So do those PWOs, when they finally get scholarships, assuming that they do, do they count against the incoming 25 a year limit? Asking because, hypothetically speaking, could teams ask transfers to walk on as PWOs and give them a scholarship after summer uh, to get around the 25-year limit. So the answer to this is no, they do not count against the 25-year limit. However, you can't just have them enroll and then give them a scholarship after summer. They have to be on the roster, I believe, a full year. That is much more difficult than you might think. 
a lot of these guys do not come from backgrounds where they can easily afford a year of school and they're not really all that wild about taking out loans or, or you know, trying to find grants to go to school for a year until they can get a scholarship. Now, sometimes it can happen, right? Like this is, uh, this is something that, that does happen. Uh, but it doesn't like you're not going to be able to get half your class to do this. Usually it's like one guy who, you know, is kind of fringy as far as talent. And, uh, and, you know, we'll, you'll see kind of how that goes. But yeah, you just got to be on the roster for a year and know they do not count against your initial counters because they've already been on the roster for a year as a walk off. Very timely indeed, Santosh. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the question. Derek fires in next here. Derek says, as you both discussed on a recent episode, this schedule is difficult overall, but offers the chance for a positive start. <clears throat> is there a chance that year two from Norvell looks similar to year one for Satterfield at Louisville? Does the combination of roster turnover, coaching stability, and an improved culture and a full uh, or more normal offseason give this team an opportunity to surprise us with an eight-win season? So, Derek, I, I feel like I may be slightly more optimistic than Bud uh, when it comes to next year's record. Uh, an eight-win season, would, for me to even entertain it, would have to be paired with two significant additions at the offensive line. I mean, I, I think uh, if you show me some decent add-ons, uh, I may be willing to talk about seven wins. And look, you know, you're only talking about a, a game difference there, but uh, sitting here and honestly projecting or finding a path to an eight-win season is hard. Uh, and I think a, a seven-win season would be a, a fairly clear uh, idea of improvement and would give you a decent amount you know, not, not anything crazy, but would give you a decent amount of momentum on the trail. Uh, just as a side note, uh, yeah, the name Caleb Boateng is uh, yeah, one for our listenership to write down. Uh, that appears to be headed in a, a positive direction at, at Florida State, even more so than maybe you listed it 20 minutes ago or so, bud. So uh, that is a kid that I think Florida State will be involved in, and that'll be a fun one to watch play out. Now, I will say, like, FSU's coaches follow everybody who, who jumps in the portal, right? This is more than just the Twitter follow game. I'm yeah. not trying to blow smoke. I'm not trying to, ooh, I know some y'all don't know. No, I just think uh, there's some positive signs there from what I can see so far. No, leave it at that. Nice. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of guys who have followed him as of a couple of minutes ago. West Virginia also following. Uh, Charlotte just followed. Uh, a couple of Florida State guys just followed as well. You, yeah, again, UNC Charlotte and, uh, and, and a couple other guys, uh, there as well, along with, uh, actually a, a pro agent that I know. So, all right. Um, can they, can they follow Louisville's path? So Louisville in 2019 was an interesting case. And I, I pulled up, I pulled up their stats from 2019. Uh, they, they went eight and five on the year. They, you know, that, that includes the bowl game. Um, keep in mind they were seven and five before, before the early signing period signs. And that's important because that bowl game does not factor into your signing class. That bowl game is played after you sign your kids. So you're looking like Louisville won eight games, but, but that was with the bowl game. I only care about what happens before the bowl game. I really don't care about bowl games at all, but for recruiting purposes, bowl games, it's not an opinion. They just don't matter because they don't happen before you sign your players. Louisville that year, they had some extremely good luck. They were more than a full win better, I believe, over their expected you know, kind of record, uh, which is nice. I mean, if you can, if you can get that, it's pretty solid. Uh, they had three losses in which they had their doors blown off. 
Notre Dame to open the year, which there's a parallel right there, potentially not the blowout, but the, you know, starting the year. Uh, Clemson beat them 45 to 10 and, uh, Miami beat them 50, 52 to 27 and Kentucky beat them 45 13. Their other wins were interesting. So they had Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky. They, uh, they won both of those pretty convincingly. Obviously not very good teams and one's FCS. Then they managed a two point win against Boston College. They had a three point win against Wake Forest. They had a one score win against Virginia. They did beat NC State by two scores, 34 to 20. And they beat the crap out of a pretty bad Syracuse team, 56 to 34. Uh, they also lost to Florida State by 11 uh, that year in early September, or sorry, late September. So what does this path look like that Louisville got to seven to seven and five in the regular season? Well, I mean, they were blown out four times. They had a couple wins over their easy teams they played that were fairly painless. And then they had extremely good luck in close games. I think they were what three and oh in one score games. Ingram, I absolutely see a path to Florida State replicating this. Is it the most likely path? I don't know. Probably not. I, like if you ask me to pick their record today, I'm probably not going to pick seven and five. I think I'm more in that kind of six and six camp, and, and I'm not even sure that uh, six and six is more likely than five and seven. I think it probably is, but I'm not I'm not convinced of that. But the one thing that Louisville was able to do is that they had a team that was extremely hungry to get ri- like like to get over the toxic culture that they had under Petrino, and they really were hungry to be coached. They had also had a full off season to take advantage of that stuff. I don't know that Florida State has that going for them, right? Like, I don't know how much of that kind of new coach smell inside that building has worn off Mike Norvell. Maybe it's still there, or maybe this this quarantine and, and COVID situation has has cost him an opportunity with with respect to that that he can't get back. That's what he's trying to do this offseason, I guarantee you, is flip the culture. It's just it's much harder to do when you've been pseudo in place for you know, for 14 months like he has now or, or 13 months or whatever. But what Louisville did is, is, is certainly repeatable. Seven and five is possible. It probably doesn't involve you getting blown out by the, the better teams you play. And then you find a way to win the close games against the teams that you have a decent shot to beat. So he asked uh, a very important question here in addition to that, Bud, and that is, uh, what's your secret to smoking brisket? Uh, Bud put out some pretty, some pretty scandalously good looking, uh, pictures of a recent brisket project, uh, on social media. And I imagine that this was probably the catalyst for such a question. But I've also, I've often said that if there was a second subject that you and I could simultaneously host a podcast on, it would be barbecue. So, I am not uh, afraid to occasionally bring that conversation into the Nolcast as well, but it's a great question and, and certainly one that we, we should definitely talk about my brisket skills uh, right now. Humility and uh, the ability to smoke a good brisket. Definitely. I would say that my secret to smoking brisket is get the fire going and stabilized quickly. Right. So don't be, don't be rushed. Don't be, Hey, I only have 10 minutes to get this fire going, right? Get it stabilized. Get your cooker hot. I, I use a, a Kamado Joe, which is basically like a big green egg. If they want to sponsor us, certainly hit us up, nolcast at gmail.com or in any grill, you know, spot. If you want to sponsor us, that, that's cool. I, I pretty much do it on anything I would think, but how you know, have it a decent grill, 
having enough space on the grill uh, to make the brisket certainly matters. Um, get the fire stabilized. I think we would both agree on that to where you're, you know what temp it's going to be at and temperature matters. I smoke mine at 250 and you need to put a thermopin or a flame boss or something in there to where you are tracking your internal temperature. Because when it gets to 160 or 165 ish, I pull that thing and I wrap it in butcher paper. Other people, you know, use foil, which is fine too. Um, some people don't wrap at all. I think that unnecessarily increases the degree of difficulty in making a brisket. And I'm not a brisket expert, but I, I, I don't typically miss anymore. Like I'm not saying I always make the perfect brisket, but I don't have the ones that turn out like Derek's asking about where they're just super dry. Uh, and the thing is, if you think about it, and I think it's like amazingribs.com is, is one of the good like meat smoking websites. They talk about how your brisket, man, it's going to absorb all the smoke it can absorb within the first couple hours of smoking. The smoke's not going to penetrate an inch and a half deep into that brisket. So get that thing smoky, get it up to 160, 165 internal, and then get it wrapped and continue to, you know, to, to track the temperature and then pull it when it's, you know, 200 ish. Uh, but wrapping it will kind of steam it in bag, if you will. It'll prevent it from drying out quite as much. It'll, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll help you cook it a little bit faster even. And, uh, It'll still come out really well. If you're worried about getting that nice crispy bark on the end, you could always throw it on for like 10 or 15 more minutes at the end out of the wrap. And then I do think resting it is important as well. I, I, I throw mine in a little, little cheap, uh, uh, like foam cooler and, uh, put a towel down in the cooler so that it doesn't melt your, your styrofoam cooler. Yeah, man. That's it. I, I don't think it's quite as hard as, as people think it is, especially w- w- once you try wrapping it. Yeah, no, you just got to have a little bit more patience with it. But you are, you're the brisket person. I'm more probably, uh, pulled pork and, and ribs, which is where I've entered competitions and fared, uh, fairly well in them. So, uh, good subject matter for both of us and always happy to spend a couple minutes discussing the fine art of standing over a smoker. Eric has questions, two different questions. He says, first of the three high school quarterbacks, Tate, Chuba, and, uh, Nico, this staff has taken, we all know, that the floor is never contributing, but I'm curious if you could compare them to any other past quarterbacks, who would you compare each to in the following scenarios? What kid is the most likely to be a college quarterback and B uh, what each kid's top end is if he develops perfectly and maximizes what he has. Tate in a perfect scenario is Thad Busby. (laughs) If you want like the best of the best, in my opinion, and Busby uh, probably a better quarterback than he necessarily gets credit for historically, but certainly probably the most physically limited of the kind of pure dynasty quarterbacks there. Um, Chuba is the one that who's got the most upside, at least at this point. Uh, although, you know, uh, Mark Hill has impressive tape and it'll be interesting to see a perfect world. I don't really know who the comparison for, for Chuba would be. I mean, I don't know, maybe a, his brother. Yeah, yeah, that's probably probably. I mean, they're kind of similar players, right? Probably. Well, I was I was thinking more along the Florida State line, but no, you're right. That's that's probably exactly who I should look at. Uh, Nico, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some interesting blend of like Dan Kendra and Bailey, Bailey Hawkman or something like that. I don't know. I'd, I think it's Kendra. Yeah, I mean, Nico's a, an interesting prospect who's uh, has a lot of a lot of fun potential. 
if you listen to the twenty four seven Sports National Recruiting Podcast, uh, I think it was either Blair Angulo or Steve Wilfong. So Blair is one of our West Coast analysts, and Steve's obviously our, our national guy. Both of them have seen Nico in person, so I was very interested to listen to that episode when, when they discussed him. I think it was last week, so go and listen to that for sure. They basically both called him like a poor man's Tim Tebow. Mm, okay. I don't know that I see him as quite that that level of athlete, but I mean, maybe that's why they said the poor man part, right? That's a pretty good comp, but Dan Kendra is sort of what, if he had stayed healthy and if she had used him in the same way that Florida did, he certainly could have been that type of player. Strength-wise, I mean, he, he's, he's one of the strongest players pound for pound that this program has ever seen. Had the highest leg press on the team as a backup quarterback. That, that gives you a decent idea as to the strength that that guy had for some of our younger listeners. Uh, okay, so Eric, I just uh, I apologize. If I think of a better one on that, I'm going to try and think of that. I'll, we're going to come back next episode, and then I'll, I'll tackle that again. Um, but I, Ingram, I'm glad you bailed me out there. I think, I think you nailed that, buddy. You want to go, uh, you want to go Jordan's question? Yeah, Jordan says he sends us no love from St. Louis. Uh, always appreciated, Jordan. We've got a, a couple decent amount of listeners out there, including one of our, uh, one of our, our producers out that way as well. So good area of the country. Jordan's a, a huge Noel fan and uh, been a big fan of our show since 2016. Uh, appreciates the new uh, BS style of attitude and reporting. Uh, with the struggles of signing just a quarterback in recent years, it has been nice to finally see some light at the end of the tunnel as Norvell got his second for now top 250 recruit who was a quarterback, uh, the two guys that we just recently talked about, not to mention a transfer named McKenzie Milton. Yes, there's still work to do, and on the field uh, needs to, an on field record improvement needs to come next. But if Milton did not transfer, what are the chances we got a commitment out of Mark Hill and actually keep him? I also see Chubba Purdy having a golden opportunity to learn and become a better quarterback with Milton transferring. I know this is all speculation, but the culture definitely seems to be headed in the right direction, and a player like Milton signing on with Norvell seems to uh, be going a long way. Your thoughts? So uh, I think the, the reason why he is saying uh, the, like, what are the chances that you actually keep Marchio if Milton doesn't come is because he's assuming that the season would not be as good as it otherwise would be with him on, right? Like that, that's the way I'm reading that. Uh, e- either that, or you could make an argument that Purdy's probably going to be the quarterback and that if uh, you've got one freshman, maybe getting another kid, a high school kid to come in would be difficult. And I think you could got it. Okay. Interpret that either way. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, that's another way to interpret that. I, I, I was just making sure I was reading it right. I think that the chances that you get Marchio to come, if you had just taken a high school kid and had just taken two high school kids prior, I think it's obviously reduced. And that's not saying anything about his willingness to compete or unwillingness. I, I, I don't know the kid. Um, it's, you know, it's a pandemic. I haven't had a chance to meet him in person. I mean, certainly I, I think just you have to look at the death chart if you have a brain and say, okay, I, I have a decent chance to start here. I, there's not that much competition that's directly my same year. Uh, so I would say decent, especially if Milton, um, if Milton Axe is able to, to give you, like maybe he makes you a win better than you would otherwise be. I mean, w- w- would you pick this team to make a bowl game if Milton did not transfer? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think if if Milton's back and you can protect him, then he's probably a full full win better than you would be otherwise. And that's even not necessarily projecting, uh, you know, the best of uh, <laughs> of Milton, but some kind of uh, realistic idea as to what he looks like post injury. 
I think the culture is heading in the right direction. I, I would agree with that. Um, they, they slowly seem to be, or maybe not slowly, they, they just seem to be weeding out some of the, some of the problem guys. And I think it's in, I think it was instructive that some of the comments Norvell made about the, the culture and some of the, some of the, the changing culture that was going to be brought in by true freshmen and by, by some of the transfers. So I, I definitely agree that, that the, uh, that the culture is, is going in the right direction. This is a long one. Am I, am I, is there anything else I need to answer here? I'm, I'm reading this over again one more time. Uh, no, I think you covered, I think you covered most of it unless you see something there, uh, that we didn't otherwise touch on. So Jonathan writes that, uh, <laughs> I promise you this is actually what Jonathan wrote. We didn't just put this in here, but he says, guys wanted to point out a feature of one of your sponsors when you're talking about the for the table group. It's understandable that most of the focus is on Madison Social. It's a great spot with great food and atmosphere. However, when it comes to trumpeting the wonders of the Madison Burger, don't forget that right across the street, Township features a great beer list and a burger that I would say could battle the Madison Burger to a draw. No, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Uh, I mean, Township dare I say is, is maybe my personal preference, uh, over Macho, both are mad. So both are fantastic. Uh, I do think that the pretzel at township is, uh, one of the better things that I could recommend to you guys. If you're just looking for, you know, less than full meal and maybe a beer and a snack, but, uh, no township does not go uh, forgotten by either of us. And we appreciate you pointing that out, uh, that we probably need to talk about, uh, it more frequently. His question is, have you noticed any discernible positive changes in the Seminole Boosters activities and communications since things were reorganized a bit? I realize this is a tough time for them to gain traction, but just wondering if the culture change Norvell is looking at for on the team is also taking root in the Boosters talk. Uh, and then Jonathan and a couple of our Patreons went back and forth also talking about brisket uh, for quite a while, but that is the uh, question that he had. I'll lead off here real quickly, but yeah, no, I mean, I've been impressed with what they've been doing uh, on the boosters and they, uh, you know, they're, they're probably a little bit more public with some of the support that they receive as far as going out of their way to pointing out uh, people that have made um, significant uh, pledges and contributions to the cause. And that's a, you know, there are some people out there who have given for a long time that were on some of the recent uh, things that were put out. Um, and there's some people that'll be motivated to do stuff like that because they may know that they're, you know, may have their name read out or something like that. I mean, there's, when you, when you are soliciting donations, different people respond differently. And, and, uh, you know, the head head of Seminole boosters has, uh, one of the more impressive track records when it comes to, uh, this type of thing. And I've been really impressed with what they have done. Uh, they are growing at a significant rate. And if you follow, uh, their social media, they're a lot more interactive and they're a lot more upfront with what they're trying to do. Uh, I've been uh, really impressed. And I think that, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to necessarily be the best hire in 30 years that was talked about in that uh, David Hale piece, but I, I think it's been a, a fantastic addition and something that Florida State will uh, reap positive dividends from for a long time. I also know that while they're they're not able to have the uh, across the state, you know, big booster tour events right now due to COVID. Uh, they are having small events with, with boosters, uh, particularly, you know, some of your bigger boosters. And that is, that is not really, uh, something that is going to the goal of expanding the booster base. Uh, I think they're having to do that more in a digital fashion, but it is important that you're connecting with your bigger boosters, especially 
in the interim in, in, until we get through this COVID stuff. So I know they've been doing that uh, as well. And I mean, it, it's just, it's a hard time to raise money for college sports, man. I mean, it, it, you're, I talked to a number of teams who not only are they not going to vote for if this is even proposed uh, for more than 85 scholarships to be allowed due to COVID stuff for next year, but they're telling their teams right now, you got to play at 85, you got to play at 80 this year. So if you take any of your super seniors back, your, your, your COVID bonus year seniors, you have to basically take one fewer high school player or one fewer transfer because you need to get your overall roster down to like 85 or 80 because we don't have the money to pay for all these scholarships. Uh, and if, that, if that's happening in football, uh, I, I really worry about some of these other sports. So I, I think it is important that they're still cultivating their, their biggest booster as well. Like you said, you know, trying to find some creative ways to get the small and medium-sized boosters uh, either joining or continuing to be engaged. No, I think their their social media presence. Uh, look, I'm not saying that the people with the Seminole boosters have called me and asked me for my opinion all the time, or that I'm some great, you know, source of knowledge. But I have had direct and, and upfront conversation with some of the guys on that team, and I think Bud and I have long since held the opinion that they need to do a better job of of you know cultivating uh, the rather rapid electronic fan base, but particularly the Florida State fan base on Twitter and. I think they've done a much better job with that. I mean, they announced uh, last week that they had over a thousand new donors join Seminole Boosters. That's that's not something they've ever done before. And the vast majority of those people are probably people that are going to give somewhere between seventy and three hundred dollars a year. And that's a that is the area that Florida State has uh, been really behind on. And the hope is the guy that gives three hundred dollars in twenty twenty one is given a thousand by 2025 and maybe 10,000 by 2030. I mean, you do cultivate relationships with people as they go through uh, their kind of career arc and their earnings grow. And uh, Florida state has to do a much better job of taking junior boosters and kind of growing them into uh, people who can provide, you know, look, that guy's probably never going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. Right. But it doesn't mean that over time you can't develop a much more, broader base of those people who give maybe four to seven to $8,000 a year. Um, when we had a podcast, we did a podcast like two or three years ago about the boosters in particular and, and some of the, the real kind of groundbreaking stuff that people took at that podcast is we pulled up Georgia's numbers and the greatest disparity was in that kind of five to $9,000 range. That's where Georgia's boosters, Florida State otherwise was fairly, uh, you know, on a, a fairly similar ground. Uh, but that kind of middle, uh, strong donor class, Florida State hadn't cultivated yet. And uh, it looks as though Michael Alford and his team are doing a much better job on having their eye on, uh, on trying to build a donor base like that. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and t- get uh, what do we have. Oh, uh, this, this question is from, uh, from Matt. Matt asks, uh, gentlemen, thank you for all the fantastic content you provide null fans like me. My question for you is about scholarship limits and preferred walk-ons. I'm wondering if there's an, an inefficiency to exploit here. Uh, I'll admit that I don't know all of the compliance rules around scholarships, therefore it could be way off base. Either way, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, Matt, you actually heard our thoughts uh, about 20 minutes ago in the show because this, this, this came up. Uh, but I will relate it to the high school ranks too. If you take a kid on a, like as a walk on, 
If you scholarship him within that first year, he counts against your initial counters. If he pays his own way as a walk-on for a full year, then he does not. Uh, there is potentially an inefficiency to exploit here with the notable exception that most kids are not going to do this because A, financially, that sucks for them to ha- have to go take out loans or, or you know pay their own way. Uh, and B, it does say something about your interest level in the player if the you as a school are not willing to give them a scholarship right off the bat, but somebody else is. Most of these kids are smart enough to take the hint and realize that's a real bad deal, right? You're going to be the first kid cut or, or, or overlooked if you take that kind of deal. So once in a while, you'll get somebody who'll do that because they really, really want to be somewhere and they believe in themselves. But for the most part, most of them are kind of smart enough to see through that. And then they, they go, they go somewhere that actually wants them. Oh, sorry. There's more to this question. He says that preferred walk-ons do not count against scholarship limits. It seems to me that it'd be possible to add scholarship quality players through other funding means. I know you can't provide them a scholarship in another sport, but what about somebody like Dr. Myron Roll? If we have someone worthy of a full-ride academic scholarship who wants to play football, can FSU give them an academic scholarship and not have it count against the 2585? Similarly, what about someone eligible for a Pell Grant? Could a university help an athlete cover expenses through a combination of need and merit-based aid? And then offer them a PWO spot. Uh, you can, but but basically, it doesn't really happen. Um, most of the kids who have the grades to get like academic scholarships from Florida State are not going to pick Florida State for football. If they're like if they're FSU quality good football wise, and they have those kind of grades to get you know that level of scholarship, like they're going to become a doctor. For the most part. They're going to go to like Stanford or Vandy or or Northwestern. Like they're they're not. Uh, I get in trouble when I say this. FSU is not as competitive as those schools academically. Notice I said as competitive. I didn't say not competitive. I just said not as competitive. No, I mean, it, but it's it's also a reflection as to how much more competitive Florida State has gotten. That if you're getting into Florida State on an academic scholarship, the bar is raised that much higher. And you're absolutely right. It's more. Uh, you know, the Stanford, uh, Stanford, Vanderbilt, Northwestern, maybe if Georgia Tech has its message uh, sharp and polished, uh, they're one of those schools that gets thrown in that discussion. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a different situation. I believe that is it for us on the question front uh, for tonight. We will thank our good friends at Congruity as always. Uh, Bat Lewis and his team uh, have been nothing but fantastic addition for our business. Uh, Congruity is experiencing your business optimized Highly customized, highly customized HR solutions designed to enhance your brand, save time, save money, and reduce business risk. Matt can be reached at 844-247-4100 or Knowles at congruityhr.com. Oh, uh, Eric Faulkner asks, uh, hey, uh, second, just for fun, was wondering if you guys were comfortable sharing a little about yourselves and how you got here. I think I've heard Bud say he went to law school. As a long-time attorney, I'm curious how you made the transition to your current career. Uh, and what the heck does Ingram do when he's not sp- not uh, spilling sp- pricey beverages on even pricier technology while podcasting? Can't can't thank you guys enough for all you do. Eric, can't thank you enough for being a supporter, man. Uh, so I certainly will take the second part of this question. I'd put this down here at the bottom in case we couldn't get to it, you know, time-wise. Uh, so I, I had been writing and analyzing, you know, for a while all throughout law school. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to you know, get the full ride when I did because I, I didn't come out with that enormous law school debt. And uh, 
you know, when, when the, the website I was working on, when it blew up, the parent company, um, they asked me to join them and, and to kind of not only join them, but to lead their team of, uh, of team sites. And, and, uh, and I did so. And I, you know, my thought was, okay, I can always go back to practicing if I want to. Um, I keep my license current because I don't really want to have to go back and take the bar again. And uh, I actually just knocked out the rest of my CLEs this December, but it was just always a passion of mine. Uh, I, I really, I came along at the right time too. Like if, if I had done it five years earlier, I don't think I would have gotten noticed because the infrastructure wasn't there. And if I came along five years later, I, I think somebody else would, would be in my spot personally. I, I just think like you have to sometimes catch industries at the right time. So that, that's, that's kind of how I got there. For sure. Yeah. No, um, I was working in sports radio uh, when kind of Bud and I first crossed paths. I had been doing that for um, eight years or so. And sports radio is a dream uh, and it's a lot of fun. But if you are in a role of producer or anything else, even if you're working on a national show, uh, it, there's not a lot of money in it. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. So uh, I kind of entered the private sector about six or seven years ago, spent a, a vast majority of my time uh, working, a vast majority, that's a, a, a lie, but I spent a quantitative amount of time uh, working on the Nullcast as well and find that to be a like basically a, <laughs> the most fun project that I've ever entered on. It's a lot of fun to kind of build this over time. Um, and it's, you know, nothing that I've ever been fortunate to be a part of. So uh, timing was fortunate for you, Bud, certainly in your ascension. And uh, it was fortunate for us. I mean, we were just kind of, I'm not going to say we invented the idea of a team specific podcast, but when I talked to Bud about the idea, it was, there wasn't a whole lot of other people in the, in the space. I'll put it that way. And we were fortunate to be able to do that, do this as long as we are. And ironically, uh, you know, tonight, I guess a 500th show is a, you know, not particularly when you're not putting out something daily. That's a, that's a number that's not uh, immediately easy to get to. And all in all, we've probably done, oh, I don't know, somewhere between a thousand and 1100 shows. So it's been a lot of fun, great time and uh, ever so fortunate to be able to have the listener base and support that we've received. No, it's, it's awesome. I really enjoyed it. 500, man. You 500. Yeah, 500. That's wild. That's wild. And I, I don't know exactly how many we did on the other platform. Uh, it's not all that important. I mean, we're, we're looking at doing this for a decade now, which is absolutely crazy uh, and is uh, all hell of a lot of fun at the same time. So. Man. And almost 4,000 reviews. Also not so. <laughs> wow. Also not so. So that'll be it for tonight's Nullcast. A uh, ton of fun as always. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, if you have an opportunity to... Uh, add to that number to bring us closer to 4,000 on iTunes or any other platform. It's uh, greatly appreciated and we will be back with you soon. All right, buddy. Be well. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.